0: So you can see in there, the book of Acts is all about the movement of God uh, and the people of God and the church in the first century. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to start off in chapter 1. We're going to try to do uh, pretty much uh, one chapter a week, if all goes well, and be able to really drill down on some of these things. But we also understand that the book of Acts is, well, it's twenty eight chapters. It's a pretty lengthy book, and in order to really get all of the meat out of this book, we are going to have to have extra time. That's kind of the reason why uh, we decided in our Sunday school time, since we do our Sunday school after the service, that we'll take some time in our Sunday school to sort of drill down and ask some of the deeper questions and look at some of the, the areas that I'm not able to cover in the 30, 45 minutes that um, I take to preach the Word. So, that being said, uh, we are now um, in the very first chapter in the book of Acts, and this is this is really an interesting thing. Um, Luke is the writer of the book of the book of Acts, and in fact, most people call it the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, most Bibles have that, and I almost wish that it wasn't titled that because I think the best that you can give for the Book of Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles because in reality we only have two apostles and one deacon that that is the primary people in the in the book. Um, you know, we've got Peter, we've got Paul, and then we've got uh, Philip and a little bit of Stephen. You know, so these are the main people in the book. It's not really all the apostles; it's just those two guys. I think a better title of this would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit um, and the creation of the of the of the church. Uh, so that's kind of what, you know, when I look at that, it is what it is, but, you know, Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, or just the book of Acts is what we call it. Luke is writing this, and this is his second document. And I think it's kind of interesting, if you note the format of the New Testament, it sort of mirrors the format of the Old Testament. Um, the one thing that's kind of really cool is, in the Old Testament, we have five books of what we call narrative history, right? It's the narrative of the children of Israel, their foundation, their formation, and their their mission that was imparted to them to be the light to the world. And it was the prophecy that that Abraham was given that, you know, your seed will bless the, you know, the whole world, that sort of thing. And that was carried forward to the New Testament. We know that seed of Abraham is Jesus, and he was the one that's going to be the blessing to all nations. Now that being said, in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, Matthew, Mara, uh, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, is mirrored in the New Testament, where the first five books in the New Testament are actually narrative history. It's the history of the, of the, of the church. It's the history of, of the movement that Jesus is, is, is started in the, in the birth, life, and then the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, And then it is followed on by the final and the fifth book of narrative history. And then the rest of the books are, for the most part, epistles, letters that are written to the first century church on how to be, much like we have the prophets and we have the wisdom literature and other areas in the Old Testament. And that's kind of the reason why it's set up the way it is in the New Testament as a mirror, if you will, or the other side of a mirror of the Old Testament. And so we now have uh, Luke who is writing his second book and Luke is, a, is an interesting character I tell you just studying Luke and studying him as an individual is profound um, he was a Gentile there's a lot to him we're going to get to him in a few minutes we start reading the scripture but you need to know something about Luke Luke was a physician he was uh, he followed around uh, many of the members in the first, uh, first church and um, he also spent some time with Peter he spent some time with Paul and he was able to be the chronicler of all All that went on through this all. He started off his first book in the book of Luke uh, talking to this fellow by the name of Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. And then he starts off his second account, the book of Acts, uh, in the same in the same vein, he's writing to Theophilus. Now we're going to get to that in a few seconds, but um, I think it's interesting to note that of all the books in the New Testament, whether you're talking about Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke and John, or if you're talking about uh, the the letter to the Ephesians, or Thessalonians, or uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, all of those different things are all written in Koine Greek, which is a type of Greek that was spoken of back in that day. It's a dead language, and so uh, it was sealed after uh, the writing of the New Testament. And with the destruction of Jerusalem, the Koine Greek that was spoken at that time was pretty much done. It was uh, went to that whole dead language category. So we have faith to know that the the words that we're reading here that have been translated from Greek are this they mean the same thing to Jesus as they meant to us we're not looking at a language that's changed over time because of use and so we have this really great language but there's also something to to note about about Greek of all the languages out there in the world Greek is one of the most precise languages for bringing out concepts, ideas, and thoughts. They don't have as much vocabulary necessary necessarily as, as other languages, like English has an, an insane amount of uh, words in their vocabulary more than most any other language. But Greek has a better, more precise way of, of bringing their meaning across in a su- succinct and short way. A lot of times when you read uh, a Greek passage, or read a passage in the New Testament that's been translated into English from the Greek, it, the, it'll come out like three or four sentences. And sometimes those three or four sentences are just one or two words in Greek because it takes so much sometimes to bring out the thought process that was behind some of those one, two, three, four words that sum it up in the Greek. And so Luke writes, because of his education, because of his ability, and obviously because of the impartation of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes with the highest level and the highest degree of Greek um, usage of any of the writers in the New Testament. He is the most precise, the most fantastic, and which is really good for us because when we read the book of Luke or the book of Acts, we can we can we are, are treated to some of the greatest um, history that has ever been recorded. Luke is a historian is bar none the most excellent and one of the most excellent historians that has ever, ever walked the earth and written anything about history. In fact, there have been countless individuals over the years that have tried to discredit Luke, and every time they try to discredit him, they are proven wrong and Luke is proven correct. And so if you, uh, as far as the historian goes, absolutely fantastic. And Luke is bringing all that to bear and we're going to go into that in a few minutes. But I think without further ado, let's go ahead and just read the first five verses and we're going to spend some time there and then we're going to uh, work through the rest of it. So, in the beginning, chapter 1, book of Acts, the first account, starting with the first verse, the first account, or first history, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders um, to the apostles whom he had chosen, To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now." we we'll just stop there for a minute. This is sort of the prologue. This is a preface. This is sort of beginning and building up some things. We've already talked about this, this guy, Theophilus. We don't really know exactly who he is. There's a lot of uh, thoughts behind him. But I think it's interesting to note, and most theologians notice this, that the very first account, time that Theophilus is mentioned in Luke's first gospel, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. In this one, he actually just calls him Theophilus. The idea is, is that many theologians have speculated that Theophilus was unsaved at the beginning of the writing, and then through the course of reading about who Jesus was, what he did, where he went, how he taught, that um, from there, uh, Theophilus was saved, and at this point, Luke is writing to Theophilus, not the most excellent Theophilus, but instead the Theophilus that is a brother in Christ. Now, I like that idea, don't know. Um, there's uh, some, also some other thoughts about who this Theophilus was. And I think it comes down to the basic document. And I, granted, you know, this is all speculation. I'm, I'm not telling you um, gospel here. I'm just telling opinion. Uh, but it's my opinion that Theophilus was the sponsor, the one that uh, paid for, if you will, the writing of both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And I think there's a reason for that. And most theologians that agree with me would, would come from the same uh, perspective. And that is that um, Luke was a doctor. And it's quite common for wealthy individuals to have slaves in their household that had a high degree of skill and speciality, including having a doctor this part of your staff. Some theologians have speculated that Luke might have been Theophilus' slave and at some point possibly freed, um, or maybe not, uh, but he was tasked to uh, follow and to take notes and to write this treaty. Now if you read the book of Luke and then follow that up exactly with the book of Acts and read Both of those back-to-back it reads interestingly it's different than the other Gospels in the sense that that Luke really specializes in in putting forth how Jesus felt it's a lot of feelings there's a lot of things that are going around there but there's also something else it almost reads like an affidavit and that's because that's kind of what it is at the time that Luke finishes up the book of Acts uh, Paul is in is waiting for his day in court in Rome. It was pretty common back in those days that when you had a court date, if you will, with uh, the emperor, that you had to submit documentation uh, for your brief, basically for your information, before you ever set foot in the court in the courtroom with the emperor. Uh, his time was obviously very important, and he only handled the cases that were incredibly difficult to deal with. And so many people believe that this this entire thing is a is a statement uh, there was going to be a record of not only Jesus, because you need to understand who Jesus was to understand who Paul was, but the work of Paul. And the reason why they come up with this is because throughout the book of Luke and into the book of... Uh, Uh, the book of Acts, the Romans are never really portrayed in a bad light. In fact, the only ones that are really portrayed in a bad light are the Jews. And they're always mentioned as causing trouble. And there's this distinction between the Roman, the Jews, and the early Christian church, the followers of Christ and so because you have all those things you kind of get the idea that this is a document that was sponsored Uh, and of course he comes back to how Luke wrote Luke wrote as a Gentile primarily to people that are Gentiles as well and he's writing about primarily the humanity of Jesus now that's different than what Mark or Matthew wrote Matthew wrote his gospel is all about what Jesus said Uh, Mark was all about what Jesus did Uh, John is all about who Jesus really was, the son of God, the son of man the divinity of Christ, and so Luke, in Luke, we get his humanity—how he felt, how he acted, um, how he treated individuals—the the, the depth and breadth of the emotion that was contained in the ministry that Jesus was uh, was going through—and so we see that in his gospels. And then we come through this first account. And in the, in the beginning, he's sort of summing up the entire first book that he wrote. You know, uh, all that I wrote before you is what he began to do and teach. You see that there. And then it says that he. Um, Uh, that he gave orders to the church, to the apostles, um, whom he had chosen. And we could go into great detail about apostles. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later in this message, about what an apostle is. But it's obvious that we have uh, something really important here. We have the apostles whom he had chosen. That's going to be important. I would underline that because we're going to come back to that soon. And then we see that he presented himself uh, for 40 days. Now we know in 40 days in the Old Testament as well as in the New was pretty significant. It was a it was a it was a benchmark for time time management, if you will. Uh, 40 days was a big thing. There was 40 days, um, uh, just 40 days all over the place, right? And so we see the 40 days of fasting. Moses did it. Jesus did it. Um, we see a lot of commonality with the time 44. Forty days that it rained on the earth. We see forty days as a block of time that's used all the time in the Old and New Testament. So it's not um, it's not uncharacteristic to see that in the only place that we know of that where the time is mentioned about how often Jesus uh, view was viewed after he, would, after he rose again. It's the only place that really mentions that. And we have the 40 days that he was here. And during that time, he gave convincing proofs, appearing to them over that period of time. He was speaking about things concerning the kingdom of God. We'll get to that in a moment, about the kingdom concept. But what we see here is is that uh, Jesus is no longer constrained by time and space, like he was when he was um, walking through his three-year earthly ministry. He is now been gone through the resurrection and he is no longer constrained by space and time you see that in the Gospels how Jesus showed up he just there, and then he wasn't there, and then he was with them on the road to Emmaus, and then he wasn't, and then he was in that room, the the locked door, and he showed up, and he said, touch my hands, feel the ribs, feel, you know, there was all those instances where he would just show up and then leave, so he was not constrained anymore by that space-time consistency, but through that all, he was giving them the convincing proofs, and all that is recorded in the previous Gospel, and 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 Luke was trying to tell us that. And then we have the words of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. Which he was giving them the the understanding of the Holy Spirit. This is also um, uh, comes directly from the the, the Gospels. Uh, John talks about it. Luke, all the rest of them talk about it. Uh, John specifically said in his Gospel that Jesus breathed out the Spirit onto them. Uh, but all that being said, Jesus was very clear that he can't that the comforter cannot come until Jesus leaves. And so this all had to take place. And so that brings us to verse 6 through 8, which is sort of that block that um, it's all in a single unit. And we see that uh, Luke is trying to give us that next step, right? Uh, He says that, Verse 6 says, so they had come together, and they were asking him, saying, Lord, it, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? This is an important concept, and I don't want to just gloss over this. I know that we will have some time in, the, uh, in Sunday school to be able to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, but the idea, you have to understand, fundamental, that's on the hearts and minds and the tips of the tongues of every, um, every Jewish person in the world at that time was when was the kingdom going to come? When was the kingdom going to be inaugurated? When was it going to start? Uh, they were they wanted to know this. Jesus came. He was the Messiah. The Messiah just didn't mean to come to save our souls. To them, and their understanding, based upon their reading of the Old Testament, was that the Messiah was going to come sword in hand, white charger, and flash in and, and, and save the day, restore Israel. There was the literal prophecy that said that Mary, your son will sit on the throne of David that was a a, the the physical throne a physical individual sitting on an actual literal throne that prophecy is yet to happen and so they're they're rightfully asking these questions because it's they're concerned about it now I think they're overly concerned about it Jesus said time and again that that's not going to happen but they weren't really listening to him they wanted to know is this it is this the moment Are we going to do this now we want to make it happen, right? We want, we want the kingdom to come forward. We want the swords. We want the overthrow. We want this to be the, the point where, where we set ourselves up. We're the guys, right? We're now the, we're now the, the chosen ones of the new kingdom. This was so important to them. And Jesus just turned and said, Look, guys, don't worry. I've got this. You don't have to worry about it. That's, by the way, my translation. That's not the biblical translation. He said to them, verse 7 it's not for you to know the times and the epochs uh, which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power. And he stopped. He said, Look, guys, don't worry about it, it's handled okay? You don't need to deal with this. Here's what I want you to do, right? That's not your part of the story. Your part of the story is is this. That part of the story is going to happen to other people that you don't need to worry about. Now, he's not saying specifically it's going to happen to other people. He leaves that really open ended. But he basically said, you guys are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And he basically lays out the, I want to say the, the outline for the entire book there. And you're going to see in the first few chapters we're dealing with Jerusalem and then once Stephen is martyred and the church starts to be persecuted, you see the church branching out to Judea and then Sumeria and then to the remotest parts of the earth, which we'll we'll get to when we get into uh, looking at the rest of this book. And then after he said these things, the Bible says he was lifted up while they were looking on a cloud, um, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now there's a lot in there, that I wish that we had time to go through. I mean, just with our basic understanding of science and how things work, and, and granted, we don't have the, the clearly the knowledge that God has. But the way the Greek is constructed, there, you know, we have this image that Jesus just started to float off blah, 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 into space, right? And he just sort of goes up and he gets behind a cloud, and and it all of a sudden just blurs out and and, he, and he's gone, right? Um, or he just keeps going. That's sort of the image that a lot of people have when it says that he was that he, he ascended and. started and he was in this cloud too but the way the Greek is constructed it was just like he was up there floating and then he was gone. You're just gone. And some people some people have speculated that maybe there was this uh, moment of, of transference where he stepped out of this particular uh, quantum plane that we're in into another um, another uh, 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 another dimension that we can't see, into the spiritual realm. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. But it's definitely interesting to think about uh, when you start looking at it, especially if you have a scientific mind. And while they were gazing up there in the sky, two, behold, two men in white clothing were standing next to him. Now, I don't know about you, guys but I've always watched like videos and and in my mind and when I read this passage up to well you know a few days ago when I was reading this again for the first time that um I've always had this image that that Jesus sort of floats up and in the midst of it you know he like he like floats past these two angels that are sitting up there in a cloud watching this whole thing and they're up there in the sky and then Jesus just sort of keeps on going and they're like hey guys right here eyes on us what are you doing sitting around watching Jesus? Get out of here. You've got work to do. You know, I just always assume that the angels were up there. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture is pretty clear. It says here that two men stood beside them. And then it begs the question, well, these two men, these angelic presences, whoever they are, who are they? Why are they there? And the fact that they're standing right next to them, it's like they're all, all the apostles are like doing this number, looking for Jesus or looking at Jesus. And then the guys are like, hey, hey, we're right here. Pay attention to us. Why are, you say, why are you staring off into space um, the same Jesus that left is going to come back but you guys have work to do so you better get to it and that's basically what some, some theologians have speculated that these two men were actually Moses and Elijah uh, the same ones that showed up uh, at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration I don't know who these two, these two fellows were whether they were angels or whether they were um, uh, Moses and Elijah it doesn't really matter uh, because God doesn't want us to know because he didn't tell us and so we had these two men in white clothing they sit there. And it says, men of Galilee, why are you standing there staring in the sky? Jesus, The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come just as you see. Watch him go um, into heaven. Basically, he's going to come back on that cloud, and we know that happens. And then they return to Jerusalem. So you get to verse 12, and in verse 12, um, uh, down to about verse 14, we get uh, sort of a, a description of what they're doing. So they come back out of the Mount of, uh, Mount of Olives. And they come into this upper room, and they start gathering. And this is where it's kind of interesting. Luke gives pretty much the same, uh, the same list of disciples that he gave earlier in his gospel. I think in, I think in Luke 22, but don't quote me on that. Um, and so... Uh, Luke has given us a a list. You know, Peter and John, James and Andrew, uh, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these, and here's the most important thing, all these were with, and these all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, Jesus' brothers. And so, they're gathered together. We know this it could be anywhere, almost about 150 people there. They're all in this upper room. They're gathered together. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're praying. And how are they praying? This is where you get to that wonderful spot, right, in the New Testament. They are gathered together, and they are praying in one accord. In the, New, in the, in the King James Version, it says one accord. In the... Um, uh, in, the, in the New American Standard, it says one mind. Uh, the word there in Greek is homothumidon, and it literally means of one unified mindset, right? They're praying in one unified mindset. How does that happen? How do we make that happen? Um, can we do that organically? Can we do that in our church? Can we do that in our professional life? How do we get to that point where we have complete, unified consensus? You know, the, the, it's a, the old joke: is you get four Baptists in a room and ask them a question, you're going to get four different opinions, right? And it really doesn't matter what question you ask them. Now we can we can pick on Baptists, but we don't have to. We can pick on any denomination, any group of people that I found in any walk of life. You put them in a room. You ask them a question. You can get four different answers because we're all individuals. We all have our own thoughts and ideas. And so the idea that these guys are all gathered together and they're in, they're in one accord, they're in one mind—that homothumadon concept—where they are praying and they are praying diligently, devoting themselves to prayer. they not only by themselves. We also had the women that ministered to Jesus throughout his career. You have his brothers that are there. We know of two that are mentioned in New Testament: uh, James and. And, and, um... Uh, Jude. And so we have some ideas here. We know that uh, some of the people that are there, we don't know all the names of the individuals that are there. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. But they are praying. And how are they praying? They're praying with one mind. With one accord. You know, I think that this is the biggest challenge that every church has. And if we could get on the same page, imagine what we could accomplish. And I often go back to this. I talk a lot about military stuff because it's kind of what I know. Uh, My wife was in the military. All my kids are serving. And So... I understand military stuff pretty well. Uh, I grew up in a military household. My father was a senior chief in the Navy, and so I understand the military mindset. And one thing that's, that you have to say about the military is when they're on mission, when they're on focus, when they're when they're uh, on the march or the move, and they're going from point A to point Z, they get there and they get there in an efficient and timely manner, and they accomplish the mission because everybody knows their roles, everybody knows their parts, and everybody's moving for one focus, and that is to. Get the mission accomplished right and we have a mission as a church and we sometimes have lost sight of that we get we get focused on all these other tiny pieces of minutia we forget the main mission of the church and it's still Acts 1 8 it's the same as it's always been to go with to be a witness of Jesus Christ into all the parts of the earth Matthew 28 18 says go you therefore into all the world Go, you know, and Luke is reiterating that in his gospel when when he when he quotes Jesus he says and uh, we're just reading it again. don't we go back to verse eight. Verse eight. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Great, that's going to happen. Has that happened to the church? You're sure. You're darn right. It has. It has happened. The Holy Spirit has come. And now we are charged with being His witnesses in both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, even to the uttermost repart- uh, parts of the earth. Now, He wasn't just making that statement to the, to the apostles. He was making it primarily to them, but He was also making that to the church. Because remember, this is the acts of the Holy Spirit. This is the acts of the apostles. And it's always been acknowledged, even in the first century, that the book is unfinished. We're still writing this book today. We'll get to that in a little bit. So you have to understand that they had a marching order. They were in one mind, and they were praying deeply in this vein. And they were praying and praying and praying. And it was at this time, verse 15. We and so we go to make this transition from the being of one mind in one accord, which is really the greatest thing that any church could ever ever attain—to have that that that, that unified um, mentality of mission-mindedness—and allows us to be able to move where God's called us to be. Then, verse 15, we have this transitional words. It says. At this time that's a transitional phrase that means that we're now moving into a new line of thought we're moving into a new section and we're going into something different here right Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren he says gather a gathering about him hundred uh, 120 uh, persons uh, was there together and he said brethren scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas whom became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And following headlong, he, headlong, he burst open in the middle and all the intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, uh, that field was called um, Hakeldama, which is the field of blood, which was in Aramaic, which was the word of the language uh, that they spoke primarily there. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Now we're having two different passages here. We have a passage in Psalm 69. And we have a passage in Psalm 109. Now I'll give you an opportunity, and this is definitely something that we want to uh, to explore when we get into our Sunday school room. But I I just want you to to, to see what's what's happening here. Paul Peter is now taking the front front row, right? He's taking the main stage. And Peter really is the main the main driver in this through the Holy Spirit um, for the first half of this book until he passes the baton over to Paul. And so now Peter is sort of taking charge. And he says, therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us and all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of us, uh, with us, of his resurrection. So, he's putting forth this case about getting a twelfth man. They need another apostle, at least they do in Peter's um, opinion. Now, there's a lot here, and we need to understand some things before we go any further, that, that Luke is writing history. He's not um, necessarily writing... Uh, he's not writing a guide, if you will, on the, on the exact things that we are supposed to be doing. This is just recording what is being said. He's an accurate recording of what is said. He's recorded Peter's speech. Peter, at this time, is still waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon him. It has not happened yet. He was told by Jesus to do what? Wait. He says, "Go back and wait for the Holy Spirit." Peter goes back, but you see that question that we talked about that was in the previous verse, verse six, where he says, "Jesus is now the time that you're gonna that you're that you're gonna uh, set up your kingdom, right?" So Peter is still thinking about this, and he is wanting this in his mind. You can see it coming out because he knows, especially based upon what is noted in Luke twenty-two, I right, think verses twenty-eight through thirty, when Jesus talks about that the the twelve apostles will be the judges of the the 12 tribes of Israel, he knows it needs to be 12. And, and Judas Iscariot not one of them. He's a traitor. He chose his own destiny and his destiny, destiny was not to go into heaven. And so he can't be one of those. So in Peter's mindset, we have to have a 12th man. And so he then puts forth his case. And he lays it down. He says that in order to be an apostle they have to be somebody that was with us the whole time that Jesus was there. He went in and out among us. He began with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up with us. One of these must become a witness. So this is the qualifications that Peter is laying out for an apostle. Okay, And this is going to be kind of narrow because obviously uh, this is an issue. Now, I'm kind of an advocate of Paul here. And you need to understand some things about this, and this is something that we're not going to be able to flesh out in a big message like this. You're going to have to do this when we go to Sunday school. But the question that comes back is, to so who is really an apostle? You know, a lot of people say, well, there are 12 apostles. And then there's 13 if you count Matthias because that's who they elect in a moment. And then you say, well, maybe there was 14 because uh, they also elected, uh, because Paul was chosen by Jesus to be uh, the Gentile, the apostle to the Gentiles a little bit later in the book of Acts. And obviously uh, Paul did not uh, have these qualifications. He was not there at the baptism of Jesus. He didn't spend his time learning under the feet of Jesus. He wasn't there when Jesus rose again from the grave. He wasn't there at the day of Pentecost. And so there's a lot of things that Paul was not a part of, but yet he was considered an apostle. I personally believe that Paul was the 12th man. That's an opinion. And you don't have to share it. And we can have good arguments about this. But I'm telling you now, that if you start doing a word study just in the New Testament about who actually was called an apostle, I've got a list of about 28 people that were titled apostles. We know the first 11 and then 12, you want to talk about Judas Iscariot, and then we talk about Matthias, and then Paul, but Barnabas a guy named Andronicus in uh, Romans 16, uh, Romans chapter 16, Junius, uh, James, the Lord's brother in Galatians, is called an apostle, Timothy, Silas, Epaphroditus, Apollos, and then there's four other people that were named, or unnamed, but were called apostles that never were given a name, that we feel were different than the list that we've already mentioned. We're already talking about 25 to 29 different people that were apostles and you Use the title apostle I I, I struggle with this I, I I struggle because I read and I hear Paul's words you know in 14 epistles nine of them Paul defends his apostleship in the beginning and he was always seeming to have to defend himself and this title I don't think that Peter was doing what God wanted him to do at this moment that's an opinion, okay. And you may disagree with me, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's good arguments and good theologians on both sides of this argument. Um, but this is how I feel because I go back to what Luke recorded of, of of the apostles in verse two. Right? It says here in verse two, until the day he was taken up into heaven, after he had been, um, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen I personally believe that the only qualifications to be an apostle was to be chosen pers- personally by Jesus and we only have a list of 13 people that were chosen specifically by Jesus the 12 including Jesus iscariot and Paul who had the Damascus Road moment where Jesus came to him and personally in person gave him the commission and said I you are gonna be my apostle to the Gentiles that was what he said to him and so When I read this, I think to myself, you know, Peter, I don't know if you're really in the right here. Now, there are good arguments out there say that say that he, that he was. And if you look in the Old Testament, this is how they handled things. There's a lot of good references in the Old Testament that talk about uh, casting lots and using that as a way to, to divine the, spirit, uh, the, the Spirit's will. Um, and the Holy Spirit had not been breathed out yet. And so the only way they would get this information is by casting lots because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. But there is sort of a randomness because Matthias wasn't chosen by the church. He was chosen by this, this random drawing of lots. It said they prayed, and it says, you know the guys, we have, uh, we have, uh, we have two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Joseph, uh, Justice, and then Matthias. And they prayed, and they gave him lots, And the lots uh, fell, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. And that was the last thing we hear of Matthias. We don't hear anything about about him again. But we don't hear anything about, really, hardly any of the other apostles either. So just not hearing about him doesn't mean that he wasn't chosen. It just means that we end that discussion. But this is something I think is important that we look at, because... It all comes back to the the first question that was asked by the apostles, and that is, is the kingdom now going to be going to happen? This is where their heart and their mindset is. They're looking for that kingdom, and they're looking for a kingdom of people that were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this is where we come into our, uh, we're laying the groundwork for next week. We're laying the groundwork for the day of Pentecost. And it's going to be an interesting sermon. I encourage you guys to tune in if you're watching online, or definitely show up and mark your calendars, because we're going to dive into some very important concepts about the Holy Spirit. But you're going to see the Holy Spirit mentioned more in this book than any of the other books combined, because it's one of the central focus. And so, when we're reading this, you know that, for me, I like to look at Scripture in three three ways, you know, uh, historically, because Every scripture has some, an element of historicity to it. Um, I want to look at it uh, 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 spiritually, uh, because every passage of scripture has a level of spirituality that, that it discusses and deals with. And then practicality. There's always that third component, practicality. So reading this first chapter, we're asking ourselves, so what? Right? How does this apply to me today? How can I take this message of what is being said here today? Well, I think there's, there's a, a couple of different areas that we can look at. The first and foremost is, in the beginning, that word homo Thumidon, that we already talked about, that idea of one accord and through prayer. You know, every church is going through struggles now during the COVID time. We're no different. Our struggles are really no different than, than hundreds of other churches all across the United States and really the world beyond. We're all struggling. We're all trying to find our relevancy. You know, Sandy and I were talking about this just the other day. The reality is, is that now churches are going to have to ask questions like, who are we now? What is our identity? Where do we where do we fit in? How we, can we be culturally relevant and not have a physical location that we meet at? How do we make this happen? How do we do what we do? How do we be what we, what we are? And I think it comes back to and, I, and I've, this is a whole other sermon we'll have to preach another time but the idea that you know having church doing church or being church what do we want to do what do we want to be how do we want to present ourselves you know we can have church yeah we, we're doing that right now we're having church right or we can we can do church and when we, and we do church we get our, our acts of service and things like that or we can be church and that means to live intentionally and missionally as disciples of the living God and we live life with one another and we're in one accord and we're focused on the mission that God has given us us. You know, we don't have to go very far beyond this building to see the need of the community and the world beyond us. It's just intense. That video we saw earlier about the light being passed from one person to another, that's our job that's what we're called to do to carry the light of the Holy Spirit the light of Jesus Christ the light of his love and his mercy and his grace that John talks about that we mentioned last week in the last sermon this light that we carry to a dark world that needs to have it it's amazing what a single light of truth will will, will, will illuminate in a world of absolute darkness and a rejection of all things true we're in that age right now where truth is relevant to most people, they want—they have a level of truth that they accept, but, they, they, but when you try to impose the real truth on them, they try to pull back because they can't handle it. And John talked about that. He talked about the light moving towards the darkness, and the darkness fled from it because it couldn't handle the light. You know, when we talk about this, we, are, we need to be united. And the best way we can do that is through prayer. And we can focus on God's word and the mission that he's given us. He's given us the mission to move as a unified body in the path that he wants us to go. We have that opportunity. So if you're sitting here and you're looking around, most of the people that I'm looking at, Are saved and and I know that you you know I know your stories I know where you're coming from but the reality is is that that this building is far too empty the number of people we have watching online is far too few there are so many more that are lost that need Jesus that aren't paying attention to what's happening in church there are real people really struggling really at, at at breaking points in our congregation in our community in our in our state in our nation in our world we are struggling in so many ways. We are given a roadmap. map. Jesus says we need to start off with a certain spot. He goes, go and wait until the Holy Spirit descends. So if you ask me what we should do, here's what we should do. We should spend more time as a body of Christ in prayer together as we are called to do that, and as we are praying in one accord and asking the Holy Spirit to descend so that when He comes down and gives us our actual marching words, we can move forward. But I can tell you right now what what His mission is. His mission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, into all nations, right? Make disciples of all men. Make disciples of all men baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he even gave us a, a guide. He says in, to, the, to the church in Jerusalem, he says, start off in your city. Now, you will notice that when he says this in Acts 1.8, he, he says, there's some things here. He says, you should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, a lot of people said, well, let's start off in Jerusalem and then we'll we'll progress out and go a little bigger, a little bigger. So we use that as a roadmap. We'll start off, like, say, here in Kenai and then we'll go into Kenai and Kiski Sodatna. Then we'll go the whole peninsula. Then we'll go the whole state. And then we'll go to the whole nation, right? Uh, well, you can do that. But you'll notice that in most Bibles that are translated, from the Greek, it says both in Jerusalem and all Judea and, the word and, not or, not then, it's and, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The and there means that we're supposed to be doing it all at the same time. That means as we are going about our day, as we are traveling, as we are moving, as we go from one place to the other, whether we're going from to work, to home, to vacation, wherever we are, we should be on mission all the time. This is where it is. And what is that mission? The mission is to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to train workers and individuals up in the way that they should be. We are to make disciples. You know, this is the hardest thing that every church everywhere needs has to do. I've never met any church, this one included, that has this 100% perfect. There are some that are better than others, and, and obviously there are, there are some that like ourselves, that we can learn a lot more, right? We can be better at this. We as a church in North America are, are not good at making disciples. We're good at getting people saved. We're good at people getting people baptized. We're good at people getting people basically indoctrinated to the milk stage of, of their ministry and their walk. But we are we are not very good at transitioning people into meat. And this is the problem we have. We have so many people that are in churches now, including this one, all churches I've been a part of, that, that you ask them, where are you at in that whole scale? Are you are you drinking milk or are you more in the meat, right? And, and the scripture talks about meat-eating Christians and milk-drinking Christians, and the difference between the two. And most everybody says because well, they want to be nice, but they really don't want to be milk-fed Christians because they know what that means. And so they say, "Well, I'm just I'm just slightly over the edge, you know. I'm no longer on milk, but I'm just sort of beginning to dine on meat." And that's a polite way of saying that that they're that they're that they're mature Christians. They're moving where they need to be, and they, they're doing it with level of humility, right? When everybody says that, but the reality is that most Christians are right here. They're just on the other side of the milk, right? They're drinking the milk and maybe every so often they'll put a little extra additive in that milk just to make it, you know, make it more palatable. But for the most part, their system can't handle real meat. And so they stay away from it because it scares them. Because real meat is convicting. The real meat of the gospel of Jesus Christ means that we need to be doing and being and and, and existing in a different frame of mind than we normally do. We need to be giving more grace, more understanding, more ideas to people. We need to be focused more on what God has called us to do. He gave us two commandments for crying out loud. Two commandments. And I've met very few people that can do just those two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Paul goes into great detail about this. You know, if we just focus on that, loving our neighbors and loving God, you know, everything else in God's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we play out, you know, there's something attractional about a church that's on fire and in love with Jesus and loving on each other. Churches that are loving are growing. Churches that are not loving are not growing. Christians... They consider themselves mature, focused Christians moving in the will of God are loving and grace-filled. Milk-fed Christians that are focused more on the law and the look and the Pharisee component of the gospel. They're not filled with love. So you ask me, so what? You have it. Who do we want to be today? Do we want to be a sold-out, on-fire follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Even though we may make mistakes? Even though we may do things wrong? Even though we may need that grace applied to us more liberally at times? Do we want to be in one accord? Do we want to see what it, what it really looks like to see a church that's on mission, on fire, and moving toward where God wants us? Or are we going to pull back because it's just too intense? We just can't handle that kind of fire. I don't know about you guys, but... I look at this and I start reading the gospel and I start hearing, I get convicted and I start thinking about chapter 2 and the tongues of fire and I'm like bring on the heat bring the heat I need it, fire me up Jesus, motivate me get that, get my, get my juices flowing get me out there where I need to be I think we spend way too much time in the building, way too little time doing the work that God has really called us to do barren busyness so, that being said, if you're sitting here this morning online or in the building and you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, please do not leave here today. Do not let the sun set before you ask us how. You know, online we've got a number of resources. Uh, if you want to, or private message us. We're more than happy to reach out to you. Um, if you're hurting, if you're lost, if you're lonely, if you need hope, I can put you in touch with a person that will give you I'll answer all those questions. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. In a few moments we're going to sing a final song, Just As I Am, or one of the final songs. And I encourage you, as we open up the altar, as we play this last song for you online, I encourage you to follow the Holy Spirit's urging. If you don't know him, send us a message. Come down front. We'll take care of that right now. If you do, if you do know him, then we need to ask ourselves, are we really on fire? We're going to be talking about some of the things these guys gave up. Every one of these men and women gave up everything they had. They were so sold out. What are we willing to give up? What's holding us back? What's keeping us from being the kind of disciple that Jesus wants? Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Lord, this morning I just ask, I'm going to keep this short because I know we've got things to do, Lord. And we've got mission to accomplish. Father, I ask that if there's anyone in here that are listening to me online that doesn't know you, that you won't let them have any peace today until they've come to know you, until they reach out and find the answers. They find that hope. Father, for the rest of us that know you well, Lord, I just ask you to bring the fire. Let the fire fall on us. Let the Holy Spirit dwell and embolden us and empower us and make us the sold-out, on-fire, gospel-centered people that you need on this peninsula that doesn't shy away from loving those that need to be loved. Father, I ask you to give us the strength and courage to be your followers, even in a world that doesn't necessarily know that they need us. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask all these things in the name of your Son and our precious and amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to thank you guys so much for coming. For those of you that are worshiping online, uh, don't forget, after the song is over with, uh, you're released. But for the rest of us, we are going to be moving into Sunday school uh, directly after the service. So the altar is open. Let's sing.